We read this morning from the book of Judges again at chapter 8. Judges chapter 8 and only verses 4 through 9. The scripture says, And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over he and the 300 men that were with him, faint yet pursuing them. And he said unto the men of Sukkoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the princess of Sukkah said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thine army? And Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went up thence to Penuel and spake unto them likewise. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkah had answered him. And he spake also unto the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Turn with me in your hymn book, please, again, before we look at that text and stand with me. And sing number 511. Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, though pressed by every foe, that will not tremble on the brink of any earthly woe, that will not murmur nor complain beneath the chastening rod, but in the hour of grief or pain will lean upon its God. A faith that shines more bright and clear when tempests rage without that when in danger knows no fear in darkness feels no doubt. 
that bears unmoved the world's dread frown, nor heeds its scornful smile, that seas of trouble cannot drown, nor Satan's hearts beguile. A faith that keeps the narrow way, Till life's last hour is fled, and with a pure and heavenly ray lights up a dying bed. Lord, give us such a faith as this. And when whatever may come, we'll taste in then the hallowed bliss of an eternal home. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Bread or no bread? You decide. You decide. As we come again to take up this record of our God's dealings with Israel by the hand of Gideon, we've seen in chapter 7, God's great miracle in the self-slaughter of 120,000 Midianites in one night. Under the hand of Gideon, who, by the way, accomplished this great and glorious victory through nothing more than faith's obedience. Accomplish this glorious victory through nothing more than faith's obedience. He had no weapons going into the war. He had a very paltry army if army it may even be called. There was no fire came down out of heaven. No disease smote them as it did the Egyptians later in Egypt. There was no death angel that came down and smote them. Nothing I said, nothing, nothing accomplished this victory but obedience. Simple obedience by faith. I've been smitten with great conviction of late at how little we do that is purely by faith. 
But then after this unequivocal victory, Gideon sets off in an unrelenting pursuit of 15,000 escapees. And this is where the history is taken up when we come to our chapter number 8. It's during that pursuit that Gideon encounters his disgruntled and ungrateful brethren from Ephraim. And by the grace of God's wisdom, he averts another national disaster recorded in verse 1 through 3. And then finally, we saw last week that he and his 300 faithful men press on, starving and faint until they had crossed this Jordan and continued unrelenting, as I've already said, unrelenting to the accomplishment of God's work that was laid in his hands way back yonder in chapter 6. From my labored studies of this passage, I can tell you this morning that it would be difficult even for me to exaggerate the state of physical and mental troubles in these men in this scene that we read this morning. Hungry to the point of pain. Fatigued, compounded by that hunger. Weariness of body and mind, and yet the end of it all is nowhere in sight. They are still in pursuit of the end. This is the state of this holy band of brothers when our text opens in verse 5. All that they have done to this point, they have done not as private men. They have not done it for spoil or self-advancement. No, no. They have done it for Israel. For all of Israel. For the glory of Israel's God. And at his bidding. They have done all that I've just recited. And so it is that they pass through the land of their brothers. Sukkoth and Penuel in our text. And when they come to them, they ask bread. Bread. Just some small relief from their hunger in the path of their pursuit. Gideon did not ask them to leave the safety of their homes and furnish them men for war. He did not ask them for help. 
He did not ask them for weapons or other accoutrements with which to better furnish his men for the battle that lay ahead. He asked for none of these things. He asked for no dainties or extravagances, which, by the way, their labors had well deserved. He asked for none of this. He only asked for bread. The most basic, necessary form of sustenance which even common humanity would have gladly rendered to a beggar. But then, what says our text? Verse 5, verse 6, And the princess of Sukkah said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thine army? They went to Penuel, and Penuel said the same thing. Bread. All they asked for was bread. As I said, common humanity would have rendered that even to a beggar. And they answer, not only with a no, but with a resounding no that impinged the whole cause to which he was on. Such answers as these would be difficult to believe that it could be were they not recorded in the inspired pages of the sacred record. Because Gideon's cause was also their cause. His mission was in every way of vital interest to them. He had every right to expect their full and hearty participation in his humble request. But as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown have said, this callous behavior was heartless, disgraceful, especially in a people who were of the same blood. Their response was unthinkable. Isaiah the prophet would later command that which all men naturally know to be right. When he said in Isaiah 35, verse 3 through 4, Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong. Fear not, behold, your God will come. Surely, every man knows instinctively that this would be right. And yet, you hear the answer that comes from their mouths. Hebrews chapter 12, and verse 12 said, Wherefore, lift up the hands that chain down. And the feeble knees, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. 
Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see God. Help one another. Surely that was the right thing to do. But Matthew Henry said, the bowels of their compassion were shut up against their brethren. They were of they were as destitute of love as they were of faith. Would not even give morsels of bread to those that were ready to perish. Were these princes? Were these Israelites? No, says Henry. They are unworthy of either title. Base and degenerate men. Surely they must have been worshippers of Baal themselves or in some way or other interested in Midian. Of such appalling, callous behavior, how can it be explained? Rogers called it barbarous and born of humanity. He said, relieving others is the duty of all men, surely. Oh, our Bible is full of instruction to that end. First John chapter 3 and verse 17 says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels, of compassion from him. How draweth the love of God in him? Shut up his bowels of compassion to him. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially Unto them that are of the household of faith. Especially to men like Gideon. Men like Gideon. Household of faith. Surely we know that. Oh, Roger said when we read passage like, passages like I read to you from 1 John and I read to you from Galatians 6.10, he said when we read passages like that, it should be as a mallet to break our hard hearts which are little moved by compassion. Even their names condemn them. Penuel. You remember that name? You remember it from Genesis 32 and verse 30. It means the face of God. Jacob named this place Penuel because it was where he saw the face of God. Sucketh. Stand, the word means booths. Where Jacob built booths. But you see, there are no booths here for Gideon. There is no face of God to be seen among these hearty lovers of themselves. Their very names condemn them. Oh, what a loss of godliness where once his face did shine. 
what? What would make men display such vile, reprehensible conduct? Well, for our instruction, our text lets us know the answer to that. Two towns, two answers. Here they are. (laughs) Somebody said, so selfish and indifferent in themselves, so cruel and uncompassionate toward brethren, so ungrateful to their deliverer, and why, I ask, why? Someone has said these unbelieving and self-indulgent lovers of themselves are yet here among God's own people. Oh, can it be? Can it be? Can it be? Can it be that such could be here among God's own people? Oh, yes, it was. It was so. But why? I keep asking. Why? What what would cause men to be such? I give you two answers from these two cities. Number one, in Succoth we see greed for self-benefit. Let me read verse 6 again. And the princes of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand that we should give bread unto thine army? You see, if Gideon had not the hands of these Midianite lords in his hand, there remained the possibility of great losses that could be their loss if Gideon failed and these enemies learned that they had aided the enemy. If Gideon took not these princes and those princes found out that Succoth had helped them, there would be great losses for them. These Midianite enemies would surely exact a great price far above what Israel was already losing every year. Clearly the implication from the mouths of these men of Succoth was that these were faithless men and that Gideon's little band had no hope of taking down these kings and their 15,000 soldiers. They had no confidence in Gideon, no confidence in God or his word. And they feared their losses. The risk for personal loss, they said, is far too high. They reasoned that the risk was too high. 
Now, before you criticize, I'm going to ask how many of us in far too many circumstances have reason like them exactly the same that if we stood by the Lord in this circumstance, we stand to lose personally. Might I just add, I fear that we're facing days ahead where that question may become far more relevant. Our Lord says in Matthew 19 and verse 16, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What like I yet Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me, in verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He stood to lose personally. Oh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, the Apostle Paul said this to young Timothy. Timothy, come see me shortly. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed. I ask you again this morning, what could drive a man, what could drive a woman, what could drive a young person to do such a loathsome, vile deed as these men did in Suffolk? When the answer is simple, just this, a love of self and self-interest, protection of carnal interests. Protection of carnal interests. The very real risk of personal loss. Money. Oh, if I do this deal right, I mean right, I'm not going to make as much money. <laughs> Possessions. Standing in a community. <laughs> I don't know why, but it crossed my mind this morning. I was thinking about Brother Roloff. He was a member. He was a Southern Baptist, of course. A member of Southern Baptist Association there in Texas where he lived. 
And I remember him telling that they one time in the associational meeting they put a man forward to be the head of the association that it was rumored with good reason that he was philandering with other women. Brother Roloff said, I stood up in the meeting just before they took the vote for him. And I, he said, I recommend to you, sirs, that we never appoint a man to an office of questionable character. He said, all I got was disdain and hard looks, and they voted him right in. He stood up, and it cost him. Cost him personally. What I ask again, what could make a people do such a thing? What could make a people do such a thing as these men in Sukkot did? It's the care, the fear of loss of personal gain. But I said, I'll give you two answers. Penuel. In Penuel, we see. Confidence in something other than God. What would cause men to say something like, what would cause men to do something like this? Confidence in something other than God. Look at verse 89 again. He spake unto the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again in peace, I'll... Uh, sorry, verse 8. And he went up thence to Penuel and spake unto them likewise, and the men of Penuel answered him in the same as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he spake unto the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Hmm. Clearly, <clears throat> there was in this town some tower. By the way, the Hebrew word there is the word castle. There was some tower, some castle, some impregnable fortification in which these brothers felt themselves untouchable. And Gideon knew it. In these men in Penuel, there's not just a personal greed like there was in Succoth for the protection of their things. But there was a deluded confidence that they had secured themselves in such a way that even God couldn't touch it. Oh, you say, that was pure folly, brother. That was pure folly. How could any man believe such an evil thing? But before you ask, I ask you, have not we at times and in certain ways in our lives said as much as the same thing? Have not we fled to our towers with confidence in them? One man may have a tower of savings. Another may have a tower of insurance. 
Another may have a tower of rights. Oh, but I have my right. Another may have a tower of cunning or skill with his hands or his mind or his abilities. All of these are towers. Have we not trusted in a thousand different towers to avoid throwing ourselves on the horns of making faith in God's word alone? Fled to our towers. And Gideon knew it. And he said, when I come back in peace, I'll tear this tower down. Oh, how very few are the times. And I stand before you to give a testimony. How very few are the times in my own soul that I could stand, that I could stand shoulder to shoulder with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say what they said in chapter 3 of Daniel in verse 17, if it be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy God nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. We're going to do right. We're going to do what God wants. How few have been the times that I've been able to say, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that, Lord, I'll do what's right, no matter what it takes. And I have nothing to defend me, nothing but your word. And I stand naked with nothing but faith, confidence in him. Oh, what could make men do such a thing? How could those men of Manuel dare to say what they said? Because they had confidence in something else. Oh, God help us. They had towers, towers of their own hands making. Our fallen hearts, can I just say it to you in plain words, our fallen hearts find no shortage of materials to construct to ourselves powers of confidence and hope. No shortage of materials. We seem ever able to construct a tower. Oh, here, by the way, is another small sidelight of help from us, for us from this text. Don't miss it. It's just a little sidelight, but it's so valuable. You see, between verse 7 and verse 8, there had to be some time lapse. In verse 7, Six and seven, Gideon and his men are in Shukath. And in verse nine, they're in Penuel. 
They had to march. They had to move. They had to transport from second to Penuel. And I don't know how long they took to do that, but I know they had to do that, and there was a time lapse between, which means Succoth had time, Succoth had time to reflect on what they'd said. They had time to repent. They had time to seek some counsel. They had time. Oh, the value of time. Time to repent. Our Lord sounded this note, did he not? When he's preaching, no greater preacher ever breathed. When he's preaching in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 20, and he said, then he began to upbraid the cities where in most of his, this is 11, Matthew 11, 20, then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee! Woe unto thee! Woe unto thee! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you and thou, Capernaum, which art exalted under the heavens, shall be brought down to hell for all the mighty works which have been done in thee and have been done in Sodom. It would have remained until this day. There was time. You've had time, our Lord says. You've had time and opportunity to repent. But you did not. And you would not. And now the time has run out. Oh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost said today, if you will hear his voice, oh, today, 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 if you will, today, today was tomorrow, just yesterday. You still got time today. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work forty years. Don't do that. Take heed, brethren. Verse twelve, take heed. Don't do that. Today, you still got time. Oh, listen to me. Somewhere, 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 somewhere between verse 6 and 7. But somewhere between verse 7 and verse 8, there was time. Time that sucketh could have repented. Oh, Lord, some here have had time. We've all had time. We've had time. The Lord give us time. He's give us time. 
Some of our children have had time. You've had time. But he said, when I come again, I'll tear this tower down. So then here were these brothers. Gideon's brothers. Stand in our narrative. Yet more pain is inflicted on God's faithful servant. Rogers said of them, they were not only not helpers in the necessity of God's servants, but they were hinderers, yea, and gripers too. Senseless blocks they are, who can neither hear nor nor say nor see nor savor any good towards any man. Like Nabal in the Old Testament, they care for no man but themselves. And now I ask another question. It's how I've been dealing with this portion of this text and my messages. I've been trying to ask the right questions and get the right answers. I ask another question. Who can possibly bear up under such a protracted and compounded strain? I said to you a while ago, based on my studies from all the sources in this text, I could not exaggerate to you the fatigue, the fainting, and the strain that these men were under when these verses opened. And now to face this. Their own brethren deny the basic necessity of life. Who could possibly bear up under such a protracted and compounded strain? Gideon did. But how? How did he do it? How can we do it? I suggest two answers again. Number one, I suggested that he bore up under it because of an all-consuming love for his people. An all-consuming love for his people. Note the specificity with which the Holy Spirit records these words exchanged between Gideon and the men of Succoth. Look at it. Look at it again. The translation does not capture it well. Verse 5, I pray you, loaves of bread, unto the people that follow me. Verse 5, this Hebrew word, people, it's a marvelous word. It literally translates a closed association. 
a tribe, a congregate unit. Gideon makes an appeal for this congregation. This closed association that are following me. We could say it paraphrasing. Please give me bread for my congregation. This holy band of loyal followers. Oh, oh, in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, so Hebrew scholars tell me, one can hear the pathos in the voice, as it were, of a mother who's urgently pleading for the necessities of her child. Please give me praise for my people. Oh, love in his heart, not only for these 300 men, but for all of Israel that had suffered seven long years in the hands of these vultures that he's now chasing. Gideon loves them all. It's after that, you remember that it's after that long list of unthinkable sufferings that the Apostle Paul experienced in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 27. There's all that long list of sufferings that he's endured. And then he comes down to 28, verse 28, and he crowns the lot with these words, besides those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Oh, what was driving him? He loved them. He loved them. The care of the churches comes on me daily. And he put it right on the top of the pile of all of his sufferings. Oh, but what? What do the men of Succoth say when they reply in verse 6? <laughs> Again, watch what the Hebrew tells us, verse 6. Are the hands of Zebun's Alma? Almuna now in thine hand that we should give bread unto thine army. Oh, they don't use the word. They don't use the word Gideon used. They said thine army. This word in the Hebrew literally means an organized mass. You see, they looked at those 300 men and all they saw was an organized mass. Gideon looked at them and he saw my congregation, my brethren to which I'm united. And all they saw was an organized body. You see the difference? See the difference? I said it was the specificity of the Holy Spirit's choice of words in this text 
that gives us this. Let me ask you this morning. When you look on Christ's church, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see an organized mass? Or is there love in your heart? Say, give, please give bread. Give bread to my people. My congregation is following me. I'm telling you, love, what could sustain, what could sustain a man under such strain? What could sustain a man under such fatigue? What could constrain a man under such terrible circumstances to just keep going on? What could sustain him? I'll tell you, love could sustain him. Love could constrain him. What constrained our Lord as he climbed that Mount Calvary with the cross bearing on down on his back until he fell under its load. What would constrain him? Love constrained him. Love constrained him. Secondly, and I come quickly to a close. What could constrain a man? What could sustain a man to keep going under all this? I said, number one, love. Number two, faith. From our text, I don't draw these things out of the air. I draw these things from the text. What could sustain a man under such strain? Divinely bred confidence. (laughs) I said, divinely bred confidence. Oh, look with me again at the words in this text. He said in verse 7, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered them, I'll tear your flesh. Verse 9, When I come again in peace, I'll tear this tower down. (laughs) Whoa, do you hear the confidence? Even under the strain, even in the midst of the fatigue, do you hear the confidence in that voice? Oh, when we get here to our text this morning, there's no struggle now like he was having back in chapter 6. There's no struggle now. There's no need now for an exercise in fleece. There's no need now for fire to come out of a rock. There's no need, brethren, to overhear enemy conversations. Oh no, God has birthed faith in his soul. And he says, When I come back, I'll deal with you. (laughs) Do you see it? Do you see how his faith has moved? Until now, nothing is a barrier. Oh, he didn't say, 
if you're wrong and I make it back here. No, no. When? I got real interested in that word. And I studied. And I found that we have a lot of places in our King James Bible that the word when occurs. And unfortunately, they were not translated the best they could be. Not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying there are several different Hebrew words, all of which got translated when. For example, there's a word when in Genesis 24:36 that should be translated after. There's a word when in Genesis 20 and verse 13 that couldn't better be translated in order that. There's a word in Genesis 17 and verse 1 that means to become. There's a word in Genesis 38 and verse 9 that could best be summed up in the words seeing sense. And in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4, there's a word that should be translated now that. But you see, None of these are the word that's used in our text this morning. This is a word, says every Hebrew scholar, which always shows causal relationship. And let me put that in better, simpler terms for you. It literally translates, assuredly, Doubtlessly, with certainty, so that when we go back and read our text, we find out that what Gideon really said was, Hey, I will absolutely certainly be back here. And when I come, I'll have their hands in my hands. And when I come, I'll tear your flesh. And when I come, I'll tear down this power. And I will certainly do it. Hallelujah. You want to see this word used in that set? This word now. Not just any of the many words translated when. No, this word. You want to see how definite it Look sometime at Exodus 12 verse 25. There it is. Exodus, when he talks about it, he says, I will. When, when you come, when you come, when you come, when you come. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 25. Let me just read it to you. And it shall come to pass when you come into the land. There's no question about whether or not you're going into the land. You're going into the land. It's a certainty. When you come into, there's that Hebrew word. Look at it again sometime. Exodus chapter 13 and verse 8. Look at it again. Exodus 22, 27 and 28. When? Absolutely, certainly. Listen to me this morning. Listen to this man speaking to his brethren. When I come back. I'm answering the question, what could sustain a man under this kind of strain? I'm telling you, it's a confidence born from God. Confidence.
when? When I come back. Hebrews chapter 11. You know it well. You're familiar with it. You don't have to turn to it. Faith is a substance of things hoped for. Evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtain a good report. And through faith we understand. (laughs) Oh. Look with me one more time. And I'll show you the level to which his once floundering faith has risen. In verse 9, he uses this word. He said, when I come again in peace. It's the word shalom in the Hebrew. And I love the definition of it. I found in several different Hebrew lexicons. It literally means a state of solid welfare. (laughs) Woo! Glory! He said, when I come back, I'm going to be in a state of solid welfare. That's faith. That's what faith will do for a man. That's what Faith will do for three Hebrew children. That's what faith will do for an apostle. That's what faith will do for a Christian today. It'll establish a solid state of welfare. (laughs) He said, when I come back in peace, said, Gideon, to the men of Penuel, have no doubt in your mind when you see my face again, I'll be in a solid state of welfare. <laughs> Woo! Hallelujah. Oh, this is a peace that Philippians 4, 7 calls, tells us, passeth all understanding. Oh, it doesn't just catch up to understanding. It passes. All understanding. (laughs) When I come back, he said. And that text tells us that it will keep your hearts and minds. Faith. Oh, what could, what could help a man? What could hold a man up under this? Their brethren won't even give them bread. What could hold a man up? Confidence. Love for the people. Confidence. This God will not fail me. You see, he was over there in Jezreel. He saw what God had done. Oh, Gideon will not be dissuaded. He will not be deterred as long as faith operates in his soul. These are all marvelous things to consider this morning and thoughts for our souls.
But there are yet so many lessons yet to be learned from these pregnant verses. God willing, we'll look again next week. Stand with me, please, and turn with me again to number 515. Standing to sing, tis by the faith of joys to come, we walk through deserts dark as night till we arrive at heaven our home. Faith is our guide and faith our light. Tis by the faith of joys to come We walk through deserts dark as night Till we arrive at heaven our home Faith is our guide and faith our light The want of sight she well supplies. She makes the pearly gates appear. Far into distant worlds she pries and brings eternal glories near. With joy we tread the desert through While faith inspires a heavenly ray Though lions roar and tempests blow And rocks and dangers fill the way